0: Take your Bible, would you, and turn to the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John chapter number one. All of the Gospel writers sought to portray the life of Christ to a particular audience at a particular setting and context in time. And we call these men who wrote the Gospels, we call them the evangelists. I love that because I'm an evangelist. And my job and responsibility is to travel to every place. I preach in all different kinds of churches. I was telling Pastor last year, I preached in the United Methodist Church. I preached in the Assemblies of God Church. I preached in... In black churches and brown churches, I preached in a biker church, I preached in cowboy churches, I preached in Baptist church. I mean, I'll preach anywhere they'll sit long enough to listen, amen? And I have one message, and it's Jesus, Jesus, what Jesus has done for us and who Christ is. And so all of the gospel writers were trying in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to present Christ in a particular context For example, Matthew, who wrote the first gospel, was addressing primarily a Jewish audience. And that's why Matthew's favorite expression throughout his gospel is the expression that it might be fulfilled. And so Matthew will will present an event in the life of Jesus, and he'll say this happened in order that it might be fulfilled. And then he'll quote some Old Testament passage. That's why you find in Matthew's gospel a genealogy that traces the heritage of Jesus, the lineage of Jesus, all the way back through David to Abraham, as if to say this man has a legal right to be the Christ, to be the Messiah, the anointed one of Israel. And so Matthew's gospel is often called the lion's gospel because it presents Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. When you come to the gospel of Mark, You find Mark using the word straightway in the King James Version of the Bible, or immediately. And Mark is not writing to a Jewish audience. He's writing primarily to a Roman audience. And the Romans were men of action. And so Mark is saying Jesus is a man of action. And so he casts out demons. And then immediately he heals someone. And then immediately he teaches. And then immediately he raises someone from the dead. And so Matthew is written to the Jews, and Mark is written to the Romans, and when you come to Luke's gospel, it has... The most polished Greek syntax of all of the Gospels. Luke is the only non-Jewish writer that we know of in the New Testament, and Luke is a physician. He's a man of great learning, and Luke is concerned to present Jesus as the as the archetypical man, perfection hum, hum, per, perfection perso, or humanity personified. What the Greek philosophers Aristotle and Plato and Socrates were searching for. The perfect man. And so Luke, in tracing Jesus' genealogy, doesn't stop at David or Abraham. He goes all the way back to Adam, the first man. And Luke's favorite phrase is the son of man. Jesus is the perfect, the perfection of humanity. But when you come to John's gospel, you come to something altogether Different. John's gospel is often called the eagle's gospel because it seems to soar above the other gospels in terms of its picture and its portrait of Jesus. And so John doesn't go back to David or back to Abraham or even back to Adam. John goes all the way back to the unbegun beginning. To say to his audience, Jesus Christ is nothing less than the eternal Son of God made flesh. Amen. And so I want you to see it in John chapter 1 beginning in verse number 1 where the Bible reads... In the beginning was the Logos. And let me just leave that untranslated for a few moments. In the beginning, the unbegun beginning. Look at this way. There are three beginnings in the Bible. There's the beginning of creation in Genesis 1-1. And there's the beginning of the gospel in Mark chapter 1-1. But in John 1-1, John has in mind the unbegun beginning. Before there was anything else, John says there was the Logos. And the Logos was literally prostatheon, face to face with God, and God was the Logos. The same was in the beginning face to face with God, and all things through him, Eganeto, came into being. We get our word Genesis from this word. All things through him came into being, and without him nothing came into being that has a beginning. In him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind And the light was shining in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it, could not extinguish it. And verse number 6, the Bible says, or verse number 9, And he is the true light that gives light to all men who are coming into the world. Verse 14, listen to this. And the Logos became flesh, the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only unique begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. Now, when John wrote these words, there was a lot of confusion about who Jesus claimed to be and who his followers claimed, the claims that they made about his life, just like there is today. You know, I travel all over the world literally, And everywhere I go, I always talk to people about Jesus. I have a personal commitment in my life that I don't let a day go by where I don't talk to somebody about Jesus. And it's amazing to me that everybody seems to believe in Jesus. And most people love Jesus. And most people feel positively when you mention Jesus. The only problem is there's a lot of confusion about who Jesus is. For example, I talked to a guy not long ago, and I started talking to him about Jesus, and he said, yeah, you know, Jesus, he had just read a book, and he said Jesus was the world's first, he was the world's first hippie. That's who Jesus was. And then another guy said Jesus was a great philosopher. And another person said Jesus was a great avatar, a great spiritual leader like Buddha and Muhammad and all these other great spiritual leaders, Krishna and so on. And then I go to West Africa and really all over Africa, and I work a lot among the Muslims. And you know the thing about the Muslims is they all love Jesus. They love Esau, and they all believe in Jesus, but they believe That Jesus was some kind of a great prophet, some kind of a great teacher, and a great moral example. And the issue today that's facing the church and confronting the church like never before is the issue of who is Jesus. And that's the issue that faced the early church. You see, when John wrote these words, there were a lot of different ideas about Jesus. For example, for example... There were some people who say, who said that Jesus was not, he was not a man. He wasn't fully human. They said that he only appeared to be a man. The word for appear in Greek is dokeo, and so they were known as the docetists, and they were a form of Gnostics. You see, Gnosticism, hell, hell to a strict dualism. Gnosticism said there are two realms of reality. There's the ethereal, the spiritual, the immaterial, and then there's the physical or the corporeal. And they said, following the great philosopher Plato, that that which is spiritual can never come into contact with that which is physical because if it did, it would bring corruption to the spiritual. And so the docetists said Jesus was not a man. He was pure spirit. And if you... Now, he seemed to be a man, and if you looked at him, you'd think he was a man, but if you tried to touch him, your hand would go right through him like an apparition or a hologram. They said that, which is physical, can never come into contact with that which is spiritual because it would corrupt the spiritual. And so they said, Jesus is pure spirit. On the other hand, there was a man who lived in the city of Ephesus where John lived when he wrote this gospel, and his name was Serenthus, and Serenthus said, no, you docetists have it completely backward. He said Jesus was not pure spirit. He was a man. He was pure humanity. And he said that Jesus was a man upon whom the spirit of the Christ descended at his baptism. He was declared at his baptism to be the Christ. And so the spirit of the Christ came upon him at his baptism and departed from him at his crucifixion when Jesus cried out, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And so Serenthus said, Jesus is nothing but a man upon whom the spirit of the Christ came. And the docetist said, no, Jesus is nothing but pure spirit who looked to be a man. And so there was as much confusion in their day as there is in our day about who Jesus is. You see, this is the issue. Because if you take Christianity just as a religion, then Christianity is really no better religion than Islam or Judaism or Buddhism or Hinduism. It's all just religion. But the thing that makes Christianity as different, listen, is not necessarily the great teachings that we hold to. The thing that makes Christianity completely and radically different is the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. So the issue is who is is Jesus. And here's what John says. Listen to this. John says Jesus has always existed. Jesus is the eternal God. Now, he is not the father because if you notice this, listen, John said in the beginning, in the unbegun beginning, before there was anything else, there was the logos. And of course, when John used the term logos translated in your Bible, Word, this was a very familiar concept and a familiar term to John's audience. As a matter of fact, the word logos was coined by the philosopher Plato, and here's what Plato said. He said the logos is the one true God, the one mind of the universe. From the word logos, we get our word logic. And Plato said he rejected the Greek pantheon of gods who supposedly lived on the mythical Mount Olympus that the Romans had inherited from them, Zeus and and Bacchus and Apollos and all these other gods who supposedly lived on Mount Olympus. He said that's ridiculous, and God was giving him light. There was a breakthrough. The light was shining even in Greek philosophy and Plato took hold of what light he had and he rejected the Greek pantheon and the, what would become the Roman pantheon in favor, listen to this, of monotheism. He said, no, there is only one God and that one God is the eternal mind who holds all of reality together and Plato called that one God, that eternal mind, the Logos. And so John said, in the beginning, Plato had it Right? In the beginning, there was the logos, and the logos was face to face. Prostontheon. We get our word, our word proceed. The little preposition pro means to go forward, to go toward something. If we proceed, we go forward, we go toward something. And pros is the word from Greek, which we get our word pros upon, which means face. And so, what? What? Here's what. Here's what John was saying. He was saying because he was a good monotheistic Jew. You see. And all Jews would get up in the morning and recite the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Christian, let me ask you a question. How many gods are there? There's one God. One God. And John knows this. But in order to communicate the essential deity of Jesus, he says this, In the unbegun beginning, Plato had it right, there was the Logos. And the Logos, watch this, Was face to face with God, and we should understand that God the Father, because he goes on to talk about the Logos being the unique son of a father. And so, in the beginning, was the Logos, and the Logos was face to face with God the Father. And in fact, the Logos was not the Father, but was God. And, of course, this lays the foundation that makes us unique from all other monotheists. We, we, we believe there's one God. The Jews believe there's one God. And the Muslims among whom I work believe there's one God. But here's what we believe about that one God. Listen to this. We believe that one God eternally exists in three separate but equal persons. Amen. Whom we call the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And while the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. You say, explain that. Man, I can't explain that. Some things you can't explain with your mind, they're not irrational. They're supra rational, and you just have to believe it to be so because that's the way God has revealed Himself. Amen. I can't understand that or explain that. I can't even explain how a black cow can eat green grass and have white milk, but I like milk. Amen. There's a lot of things I can't explain. I can't explain my wife, but I love her. Amen. And I can't explain God, but I worship God. And I know that Jesus is more than just a man and more than just God. He is, in fact, the God-man. He's god Come in the flesh, so in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was face to face with God, a term of equality. Jesus is not less God than the Father or less God than the Holy Spirit. He is in fact God in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and everything that has come into being has come into being through the through the work of Jesus Christ he has created everything and just John says every bit of light that we have comes from Jesus, comes from Jesus. For example, there is truth in Buddhism. There is light in Buddhism. There's truth there. As a matter of fact, the Buddhists talk about an enlightened experience. But the light that is in Buddhism is Jesus. The light that is in Judaism is Jesus. The light that is in Islam is Jesus. And while there is light in every religion of the world, that is, there is a bit of truth in all these religions, but the fullest expression of that light is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? And that's why when I go to Africa, when I go to Africa, I talk to the animist. The people who believe that the spirits of their ancestors are intermediaries between them and the creator God. In West Africa, they call that God Yame, and they believe there's one creator God. But they listen, they say they can't get to that God. And so they have to go through the departed spirits of their ancestors that inhabit sacred spaces like rocks and trees and rivers. And they go to those places, and in order to appease the ancestors... They have to make a blood sacrifice. That sacrifice might be in the form of a chicken or a goat or or sometimes even a baby. And what more innocent blood is there than a human being who has never sinned? And so they believe there's one God, and they believe they can't get to that God unless they come to that God through an ancestor. And in order to get to that ancestor, they have to make a blood sacrifice. Well, guess what I tell them? I tell them that you're right, there is one God. And you're right, you can't get to that one God on your own. And you're right, in order to get to that God, you have to come through an ancestor. And you're right, in order to get through that ancestor, there has to be a blood sacrifice. And then I tell them, can I tell you about that ancestor and about that blood sacrifice that was made in order that you could get to know God? Amen! And they come to God by the hundreds in northern Africa. When I go to the Muslims and they're searching for truth and they have the life that they have, I always ask them, do you know for sure i was i was in with a cab and a cab with a cab driver a muslim cab driver and i said to him let me ask you a question what did muhammad do to save you and he said well he gave us some great teachings and i said well that's wonderful have you kept all of muhammad's teachings and he said no And I said, well, let me ask you a question. If this cab careened off this road down into the valley below us, I know for sure that I'd go to heaven to be with my God. Let me ask you a question. If this cab careened off this road into the valley and we both died, do you know for sure that you would go to be with your God? And I'll never forget what he said. He said with sadness in his eyes. He said, no Muslim could ever say for sure That if we die, we'll go to be in paradise with Allah. He said, unless, unless, unless we die in jihad, in defense of Islam, in a holy war. And I said, well, let me get this straight. He said, and I said, in in order to go to heaven, this is what you're saying, in order to go to heaven, you have to strap a bomb on your back and walk into a building and ignite that bomb and blow up innocent women and children and men. Is that right? You have to die for your God in order to go to heaven. And he said, that's right. I said, let me make you a better deal. I said, for you to go to heaven, you have to die for your God. I said, so that I could go to heaven and you could go to heaven. Our God died for us. Our die, in, in other words, for you to go to heaven, you have to strap a bomb on your back and blow yourself up and die for your God. But in order for us to go to heaven, our God strapped a cross on his back and he walked up a hill and stretched himself out and they sped on him and they nailed, they drove nails through his hands and feet and ripped his beard out and beat him until he looked like a piece of raw meat and God took all of our sin and placed them on him and Jesus God, and the flesh died on the cross in our place and three days later rose again. I said, doesn't that sound like a better deal? Listen to me. And he began to weep. We pulled the car over the side of the road and that cab driver began to weep. Here's what he said. He said, my parents were Christians. And he said, There were so many of us born. He said, There were 11 of us born. And I was in the middle. And he said, My parents could not take care of us. And so they sent me to live with my uncle in the big city of Kumasi. And he said, My uncle was a Muslim. And because I didn't want to disappoint my uncle, I converted to Islam. And he said, But I've been empty. I've been trying to keep the teachings of the Quran, but I've been empty on the inside. And he said, I want to. He started crying. And I started crying. And he said, I want to come back to Jesus. It's only in Jesus that we find God fully expressed. Amen. And that's why God became a man, you see. You see, what blew the mind of John's audience, and I'm finished, is not that there was an unbegun beginning in which the eternal mind held all of reality together. That was no, but they all believed that. They were polytheists and so they didn't have so much a problem as, as sometimes the Jews did with accepting that Jesus Christ is in fact God. But here's what blew the mind of John's audience. When in verse 14 John said this, and the eternal God who is face to face with the Father, equal to and yet distinct from the Father, that eternal mind, became flesh, became meat. We talk about the incarnation. Carne in Latin means meat. In other words, God, listen to me, man. God became meat. God became flesh. And the Bible says he dwelt. The word eskanosin literally means to pitch a tent to pitch a tent it has the same consonants as the intertestamental word for the glory of god the shekinah glory of god you see listen god has always wanted to be with his people amen do you see that you see god is not some distant deity who just creates everything like the watchmaker he makes the watch and winds it up and then backs off and lets everything no 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 god is a personal god god loves us God created us, and it has always been the heart of God to be with us and even more intimate to that, to be in us, to be one with us. And so God made a garden, and he made image bearers to be in that garden, to walk in intimacy with each other and with him. And we messed that up and got kicked out of the garden. And so God said, I'll build a tent for my people, and I'll put it right in the middle of my people so that my people can know me. And they called it the tabernacle. God pitched a tent in the middle of his people and said, I want to be right here with you. And they messed that up. They turned to idolatry, and so God said, now I'll come and live in a temple. And so they built a temple, and God's presence would invade that holy of holies until the people began to worship the building and not the God, not the God, not the God of the universe. And so they messed that up, and finally God said, I'm going to do something that they can't mess up. I'm not going to live in a garden or in a tent or or in a temple. I'm going to come in human flesh. And so God, listen to me, the eternal God, the Logos, The Son of God stepped down the starry steps of eternity into time. And the creating one became the cradled one. The infant was at the same time the infinite. This is the message of Christianity. It's not what we do in order to appease God or try to be good enough to get to God. Listen, we could not get to God, so God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ who left the glory of heaven came down to this earth and the infinite was at the the infant was at the same time the infinite God God became a man the baby that Mary held to her breast was nothing less than God who created everything that ever has been and he grew up because he was not only God, he was also a man. He was fully God and fully man, just as much God as if he were not man and just as much man as if he were not God. God and man, two natures in one person. And so he had to grow and develop and learn just like any other man. And at the same time, he was God who laid aside not his deity, but the external prerogatives of his deity. In other words, he said, he never said, I'm God, I don't get tired. No, he laid aside the external prerogatives of his deity, and he became tired, and he became thirsty, and he even bled, and he died, and he wept because he was a man, and that blew John's audience away because they didn't believe that the, that the eternal, the immaterial, the non corporeal could ever come in contact with the material and the physical. And yet, John said, God became meat. Now, why would God do that? Why? This is the great question that theologians have wrestled with through the ages. In the 12th century, there was a man named Anselm, a great theologian of the church, and he wrote a book called Cur Deus Homo in Latin. Why? Would God become a man? And here's what Anselm said. He said, God became a man because only a man could die in the place of other men. And that's what we read about in the Gospels. As a matter of fact, what two-thirds of the Gospel material is focused around the last week of Jesus' life, the passion of Christ, when they took him and they beat him, and they spat upon him. They ripped his beard out by the roots and nailed him. That's why. Why did God become a man? Why did we behold his glory, the glory as of the one and only unique son of God? In John, in John one twenty nine, John the Baptist would call him the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Paschal Lamb that would bear away, carry in his own body the sins of the whole world. Because when Jesus hung on the cross that day, listen to me, He didn't die as a hopeless martyr of a failed cause. He wasn't just dying as a moral example. He was dying as a substitute and a sacrifice for our sins because God is a holy God. And the truth is all of us have sinned, whether you're a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Jew or an atheist. We all know what it is to feel guilty about things that we've done, don't we, huh? The Bible says God has ten commandments, and the fact is we've all broken all God's commandments. For example, God says, you should not steal. How many have ever broken that commandment before in your life? How many of you have ever stolen anything? Let me see your hand. Amen. On Sunday morning in church in Rustin. How many of you have ever stolen anything? Amen. All of us have. Thou shalt not lie. How many have ever broken that one? You're lying right now, dude. Get your hand up. Amen. I mean, all of us, huh? All of us. You say, but I've never murdered anybody. But the Bible says, Jesus said, if you've ever had hatred in your heart towards someone because they did you wrong or ripped you off or swindled you or took your husband or your wife and you've thought in your heart, man, I hate that person. Jesus said, you've committed murder in your heart or adultery in your heart. All of us have broken all of God's law. And because God is a holy God who cannot stand sin, God hates sin. and We're all sinners And that means God has a problem, doesn't it? Because he loves us, and he wants to be with us, and he wants us to know him. And yet our sin has separated us from him, and there's nothing we could do about it, no amount of religion. You can get baptized, join a church, you can read the Bible, but none of that will atone for your sin. And so when we couldn't get to God, God said, I'll come to them. And in the person of Jesus on the cross, hanging there, covered with spit and sweat and dirt and blood. And do you know what else covered him that day? Every sin you've ever committed. And every sin I've ever committed. The Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be made right with God. And so God took my sin and your sin and the sins of the world and laid them on Jesus. And in a moment of time, Jesus paid for our sin. That is, God himself took upon himself his own wrath. He turned his wrath in on himself and bore the punishment for our sin so that we could be forgiven. Why did God become a man? Because only a man could die in the place of other men and only a man who was at the same time God could die for the sins of all the men who have ever lived And in that moment of time, Jesus was paying for the sins of every person who would ever breathe breath on planet earth, all of us. The Bible says he died so that all of us could be reconciled to God. They took him down off the cross. And they put his body in a huge hole in the ground. And they rolled a stone over the mouth of that tomb. And they said, we're done with him. That troublemaking prophet, the religious leaders who conspired with the Roman governmental authorities to put him to death, to murder him, said, we're done with him. We'll never be bothered by that itinerant carpenter's son from Nazareth, that Jesus fella and that night the devil and the demons of hell got together in the belly of hell and they threw a party they said we've killed the son of God now humanity is ours and they'll never be free but the Bible says three days later listen I'm about to get happy amen three days later at 845 in the morning I'm about to bless you early in the morning Mary came to anoint and embalm the body of Jesus with spices but when she got to the tomb she found the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty and Jesus is not just some man who came into history and lived and died he is the God man the Lord of history who went to the cross and died and now he lives Jesus is alive and that makes him different than Buddha or Muhammad or Krishna or any other leader who's ever lived Jesus the eternal son of God is alive amen and that's the message that we have to give to the world that's the message that changed my life I wasn't raised in the church. My mom was 15 years old when she got pregnant with me. My dad was a teenager. Nobody in our family ever knew God. Young person, if you're here this morning and your mom and dad woke you up and said, get dressed, it's time to go to church, you ought to thank God for that. Because I didn't have that. My mom was a teenager. My dad was a teenager. They didn't know God. There was a Southern Baptist church six blocks from the little hovel of a house, I grew up in Wichita Falls, Texas, in an area of town they call the dog patch. And as far as I know, nobody from that church ever came and knocked on our door and said to my teenage mom and dad, why don't you sweet young people come, bring your little boy and come to our church? Or better than that, why don't you give your heart to Jesus? He loves you. He died for you. He rose from the dead. And I've often wondered what a difference it would have made in my life if somebody would have just cared in a First Baptist Church, are you listening to me? Are you listening to me? You who say you know Jesus, but you never talk about Jesus. You never ask anybody, do you know Jesus? You just come to church and go through the religious perfunctories, but in your heart, your heart doesn't burn with the passion for Jesus and a passion to make Jesus known. And so nobody ever came, and my parents' marriage spiraled out of control. My mom began to be a bartender as a teenager at a place called Frank's Place down on East Scott Avenue in Wichita Falls. My dad was a truck driver, seldom home, and as I grew up, I saw my mama with one man after another, after another, after another. When I was seven years old, finally my parents came together He said, Scott, we want to talk to you. And I stood between my mom and dad dodging flying pots and pans and flying accusations and flying cuss words. And finally, my parents said, it's over. We're going to get a divorce. And I don't know what to say to you other than to say that day something inside of me died. Darkness came into me as a little boy. And I lived the rest of the, the next 10 years of my life in total and complete, absolute darkness. When I was in the eighth grade, somebody handed me my first beer. When I was a freshman in high school, my first marijuana cigarette, and by the time I was a junior in high school, I was completely and totally addicted to drugs and alcohol. They controlled my life, every decision. On the outside, I looked good. I was a 240, 220-pound fullback, two hundred. A little more than that now, amen, but I was a 220-pound fullback going to play college football, and I, I strutted up and down the halls of my high school like I had the world by the tail, but it was just me and four walls and darkness. I'd cry myself to sleep in the darkness at night because I didn't think anybody loved me. I tell people all the time, Pastor, my life was so out of control. It was like a soap opera. I mean, as the world turned, I was one of the young and the restless who was in a constant search for tomorrow until one day the guiding light took me by the hand, led me through the secret storm and promised me I could live with him in another world and be part of all my children. Amen? I mean, God changed my life. He changed my life, set me free in a jail cell 33 years ago, booked on a felony because of my life as a thug and a criminal, a drug addict, driven by the darkness. I sat in a jail cell in Fort Worth And for the first time in my life, I heard about Jesus. Listen to me. That he loved me in spite of all my sin because I didn't think anybody could love me. Every other word that came out of my mouth was filth. I used everybody ever I got my hands on. I broke my dad and my stepmom's heart. I'd wake up in my own vomit. My life was so empty and so dark, and for the first time in my life, I heard that there was a God who loved me so much that he gave his son to die. It wasn't Buddhism. Thank God I didn't, I didn't have somebody come and say, well, you need to meditate, or somebody come and say, you have to keep the Ten Commandments, because I couldn't keep the Ten Commandments, and I didn't have a mind to meditate. They told me that Jesus loved me. And that he had done something for me that I could never do for myself. That he died in my place so that I could be set free and that he rose from the dead. And that if I would trust him as my Savior and my Lord and follow him, he would change my life. And sitting in a jail cell 33 years ago, I can't explain it. It's it's not irrational, but it's beyond our ability to understand in the natural. Like air coming into my lungs, Christ came to live in my heart. I turned from my sin and trusted Christ, and I walked in a jail cell one way, and I walked out of a jail cell another way because of the power of Jesus Christ. Somebody ought to shout right there, amen. So for the last 33 years, I've been traveling all over the world with one simple message and that is that no matter who you are and no matter what you've done, what the whole world is looking for is Jesus. Jesus is the answer. If you're an astronomer, he's the bright and morning star. If you're a baker, he's the bread come down from heaven. If you're a carpenter, he's the door. If you're a doctor, he's the great physician. If you're an electrician, he's the light of the world. If you're a farmer, he's the lord of the harvest. If you're a geologist, he is the rock of ages. If you're a horticulturalist, he is the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. If you're a king, he's the king of kings and the lord of lords. If you're a lawyer, he's our advocate with the father. If you're a mortician, he's the resurrection and the life. If you're a nutritionist, unless you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you have no life in you. If you're an optometrist, he made the blind man see. If you're a philosopher, he's the truth. If you're a traveler, he's the way. He's Jesus. He's Jesus. He's Jesus. He's He's what the whole world needs. Amen, church. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed in this place. I gotta ask you a question this morning. How many of you would say, Scott, I know exactly what you're talking about? I remember as a little boy or as a teenager, as a grown.